So I've been here as the uh, interim preaching pastor for pretty much exactly six months. And uh, during that time, you've gotten to know me in a few different ways. Uh, you've learned that uh, probably that I, I, I tear up kind of easily if I kind of tell a very heartfelt story. I'm, I'm pretty transparent. I, I don't sob, cry. I just kind of tear up. I kind of leak, you know. <laughs> it's not like that. It's just, just little tears, you know. Um, you've probably learned that I, I, I can be pretty dramatic, I mean, we're speaking through the book of, of Mark, and it's great stories, and, and I've been known to scream really loud uh, as part of the story, and so uh, I love to tell stories, and sometimes that, that startles people. Um, those are kind of stylistic things, and so you pick up on those just watching me. If you got to know me a little bit better, uh, you would come to know that, that I'm not really very emotional, uh, other than those leaking moments. Uh, I, I pretty much function on a pretty even keel. I mean, if, you, if something great happened yesterday, so Dale, tell me about yesterday, I'd say, it was awesome. And if something bad happened yesterday, yeah, it was kind of sad, I feel bad about it. Not, not a big distinction on my response. I just kind of operate here, which has some real good positive things about it, uh, under very stressful situations at work or at home. Or I'm, I just kind of maintain this edge, which sometimes drives people crazy. Don't you want to feel something? It's like, well, I'm, we'll see what happens. Uh, so I'm good under stress, I'm good under pressure, uh, I just kind of operate on this kind of steady state, that's just who I am. But if you got to know me really well, that's so all I'll let you in on a secret, is that beneath that very calm, steady, take it as they come, not high, not low personality, is a fierce competitor. I mean, I don't lose. If there's a challenge in front of me of any sort, I, I will find a way to win. Now, this doesn't count some of the stories you heard of, like, junior high running track when I was, like, four foot nothing and, and you know, was quick, but always had, like, three people pass me at the finish line. That was just pure, raw, physical realities of the moment. But if there's a challenge, whether it's a, a game like playing golf with friends or some kind of challenge at a, at a um, you know, a company retreat where you're supposed to build things or do something. I'm going to come up with the best one. And I always like to go last. That's my personality because uh, some people like to go first and set the bar. I like to know what I have to beat and be the last one to go and I'm going to win. I mean, whether it's, um, you know, silly like food contests in college or something. My wife learned this about me really quickly. We'd been married like a year and we were at some party of um, like, like young married people, Sunday school class. And, and, and they were playing like, dumb party games, which I excel at. Um, and there was one where it's like a donuts hanging by strings. You ever played that one? And you have to eat the donut that's on the string. And this was at couples, right? And, and I've done that one like as an individual before at company things. And the trick there is to go under it and come up. You know, and, and before anybody even thinks you finish. But the one with the couple, I said to Laura, and she, you know, we'd been married a year or so, I said, okay, when they say go, you just stand here and I'm going to smash it up against your face and just eat it. They said, go, and I went, done. And people are like, you know, and can't find the donut they were on. So I win those things. There was a time in college, another food contest. It was uh, relay teams eating Baskin-Robbins banana splits, and all you had was the little taster spoon, right? And so people going, man, how do you eat that fast with a taster spoon? I said, it's just a tool. You turn the boat towards you, put it behind a scoop, and then just go, I'm going you know, just fast. There, there are always ways. If you're, if you're competitive and analytic and you're strategic, you can always find one. Like bobbing for apples is really pretty easy because what you do is you have to slam it to the bottom of the big bin. You don't try to grab it. You go, and get it and come up and you're soaking wet. And always go first in bobbing for apples. I won't go into why. The water's fresher. So, so I'm highly, highly competitive about anything that comes my way that way, and people don't know it until after the fact. 
because then I'm pretty good gloating uh, that I won the event. Now, now in the book of Mark, uh, this competitiveness actually plays out quite a bit, and, and it plays out with the disciples in a number of scenarios, and it's, it's going to increase, actually, as we, we move through the passage. And, and I, can, I, can, I, I can see where they're coming from because I'm competitive, and they're obviously competitive. If we look at uh, a few weeks ago, it was the pivotal point in the book of Mark. Everything that happened in the first half of the book uh, was Jesus had come on the scene and he was proclaiming that he is the king of the new kingdom of God. He, he's proclaiming, as it said right at the beginning, this is the, this is the beginning of the gospel, the good news about Jesus the Christ. And so we know from the book and the way it's written that he is the Messiah. And now it's going about proving that. And he, he calls people to follow him. And he says, we're going to learn what this kingdom is like as we go along the way. And he's going to demonstrate to them what this upside-down kingdom is like, because their view was completely different than what Jesus was teaching and exhibiting. And so we, we had seen all these exhibitions of, of miraculous power. The disciples were right with him when he we healed multitudes of people, when he, we cast out thousands of demons from one guy, where he fed thousands of people miraculously from very few provisions, where he, he preached authoritatively. He, he was amazing, and they saw this power. And it got to the point where Jesus said to them, who do people say that I am? And they said, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, one of the prophets. He says, well, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you're the Christ. And we think this is finally, they're finally getting it. All this time up till now when they, when they failed to grasp things, they finally got it. And we used a phrase from the, the Princess Bride at that sermon. It said, I don't think that word means what you think it means. Where, where Jesus said, you got the title right, you got the answer right in a strict sense, but, but you don't understand the meaning. And he then went to, because that was not their view of a, of a Messiah, right? Messiahs win. And dying seems like losing. Messiahs come on the scene and they're a, they're a political or, or military hero that's going to rescue God's chosen people from their oppression and put them back into first place. That's what messiahs do, and you, you called us. We're your chosen ones, and you're going to help us win, because that's what messiahs do. And so then Jesus took a couple of the disciples, three of them in particular, Peter, James, and John, up on a mountain. And there they got a glimpse in the rea- to the reality of Jesus that nobody else had ever had, where they, where they saw him transfigured in front of them. He was in resplendent white. He was like a, a flash of lightning so bright they couldn't see. And standing with them was Moses and Elijah. And they, and they heard an audible voice of God saying, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. An amazing moment. And Peter, who was there in his, in his fear and, and trembling, said, Let, let's build some shelters. Let's memorialize this moment. And we use the idea of let's take a picture to remember this by. And, and Jesus was basically saying, don't take a picture. This isn't about memorializing something. I've given you a glimpse into who I am and who I always have been. Now I want you to take this moment, not to take a picture, but see it as a window into who God is and how he wants to engage this world and who you are in the middle of it. That was, that was the call. And they weren't supposed to talk about what they saw. And then they headed down the mountain, remembering this glory, right? They've seen all the miracles. Now they saw this miraculous vision of Jesus. This is amazing. He is the winner. But they went down in the valley then. And the other disciples were basically floundering in the midst of an abject failure. Where people came to them and said, can you cast the demon out of my son? And and they had gone out and done those kind of things before. In in Jesus' name, as a representative of Jesus. And 
but now they failed. And they, and they said to Jesus, why couldn't we do it? And Jesus said, because this kind can only come out by prayer. And, and we defined prayer in that context and throughout Scripture as prayer is a close, abiding, ongoing, enduring relationship with God. So we come to today's passage, right? And, and it's found in Mark chapter 9, verse 30. And I have the wrong version listed on my paper here. So let me read it here so it'll match what you're reading. It says, they left that place. And what was that place? It was the place they had just failed, right? They, they had just fallen short of, of what they thought they should be able to do because they didn't have a close, enduring relationship with God. So they left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When, When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me but the one who sent me. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly, I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. This story makes me laugh, mainly because I identify with the disciples. Right? Remember the scenario. They just left that place, that place of failure, that place where they couldn't do what they thought they should be able to do because they had power from God. They thought it was theirs to, to desire. Right? We have this authority, we have this power, we can use it as we want. But but they couldn't because they didn't have this close, enduring relationship with God. And so they had failed. And and Jesus was using that failure as an opportunity to teach them. There was a great opportunity to learn to depend on God. And and as they're going, it's interesting, this place in, in the book of Mark really changes and transitions lots of things. Notice that he didn't want anybody to know he was there. His time of public ministry, of big healing and big teaching is, is kind of coming to an end. Because he knows his time with the disciples is very limited. These, these 12 close and then, then a f- other people that, that followed him and listened to his teaching. That, that time with them was short. And there was a lot to be accomplished. And so he wanted to spend focused time with his disciples, with these 12. And so they're going along the way. And, and it said they were, uh, they were arguing. It said he had told again about he was going to have to suffer and that he was going to die and 
Uh, There was a new piece of information given this time, though, where it said he was going to be handed over. He was going to be betrayed. And it said they didn't understand what he was talking about, but they were afraid to ask him, which was also kind of new. Because usually when they don't understand things, especially when he taught in parables, they would go and say, what does this mean? And he would tell them. But now he's speaking very plainly, but, but they don't want to ask more. They, they, they don't understand it. They, they must think it still comes kind of a riddle. Because once again, remember, messiahs are triumphant. Messiahs win. Messiahs put us back in the place of status. That's what a Messiah is about, and you have called us to join you in that. So we must be winners. And so he said, what were you arguing about on the road? And at one point it said they were afraid to tell him. Why? Because they were arguing about who was the greatest. The greatest of the failures? Now we know the whole story, right? We we have 2,000 years of history. We have all of Scripture. We can look back, and we know that when Mark started the book by saying this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus the Christ, we know this is about Jesus. We know this is about the Messiah. We know the whole story of him being crucified and buried and rising again. We know it all. So we know that in this story, when Jesus is walking, he's he's really on his way to Jerusalem to die. And the disciples are arguing about what's the order they're going to get to follow him in. Because why? They think this is about winning. And if we're thinking about game theory, if you're familiar with game theory, they, they believe everything's a zero-sum game. There are winners and losers. I mean, that's the nature of athletic endeavors, right? Somebody wins, somebody loses. I don't care about the Olympics where third place is they say you won the bronze. No, you were the second loser, right? There was one winner. Everybody else lost. And that's the way life is structured in a zero-sum game. That's the way it is, and that's what they saw it. If we're following the Messiah, if we're his chosen ones, we have to be winners too. So so we need to have place of status, because when you win and when he establishes this kingdom, we need to be at the top so we can rule, so people can serve us, right? That's that's what winning is about. And it's a zero-sum game, the way that that plays out in contemporary culture in lots of ways. I mean, remember, um, they viewed the kingdom of God like the show Survivor. Right? There, there were winners and losers. And Survivor, remember the, the, the motto of, the, of Survivor is outwit, outplay, outlast. And so it's made up of these teams that aren't really teams. They're loose partnerships and alliances for the sole purpose of being able to manipulate things so that you are the lone, the final survivor. Right? And in a lot of ways, I think that's how we seem to view life. And that's how the disciples saw the kingdom. If you're the Messiah, you're the winner. That means the others lose. We want to be on the winner's side. So we can argue about who's the greatest, because those are the winners. There was another TV show, probably not quite as popular reality show in like late 90s through the early 2000s called Eco Challenge. Have you ever watched that one? That was a long time ago. That was kind of the opposite of Survivor. It took place out in these incredibly horrible conditions around the world, different grueling endurance race, about 300 miles. and It was made up of teams of four from all over the world. The caveat was you would automatically be disqualified if all four members of your team do not finish at the same time. That's that's not Survivor. The Eco Challenge is a completely different deal, and it was grueling, and there were all kinds of situations, whether it was from somebody being injured or somebody infighting an argument or they couldn't decide who should do it. If, If anybody was left behind, the whole team lost. Eco challenge. Now, that's not something we participate in very often, that kind of approach. Uh, the closest I can come to in my life was I was in 100 of us. We all started in Florida, in, in the jungles of Florida, 
I mean, and, and parts of Florida is really rough. I mean, there are places that's like just overgrowth and trees. And this particular area had armadillos everywhere. And you slept on these platform tents because there were snakes. And we know there were alligators somewhere. I mean, we're all in high school. We could dream it, right? And, and it was the kind of place where when you went and checked in and they sent you to where your, your site was, they gave you, it was like, like a pipe with a water pump on the top of it. And that's how you wash things. Because all you had to do is like hammer that thing up 18 inches in the ground and you could pump out like this sulfurly smelly water. That's how you clean things. You know, and, and then one of the amazing things and say it was like teams of 20 and we we're going all over the world, but two weeks in Florida and it's about team building and preparing to go because people were doing all kinds of tasks around the world. Uh, we all ran as a team an obstacle course every morning after breakfast. And the obstacle course involved, you know, running, you know, from the start. You run, you're winding through, and you're jumping over things and climbing things, big cargo nets, you know, that go up over these bodies of water that we know were alligators in there. And then there was a place you had to swing on rope swings across this pretty wide pit of mud, you know, and they they used this great Pilgrim's Progress metaphor there. This was the slew of despond. That's a very inside story if you haven't read Pilgrim's Progress. The slew of despond, you run and run and run, you go through, and, and then the final obstacle was a 12-foot wall that they didn't have a rope or ladder or anything, just a wall, all right? And, and I think when I've looked at things since then that they don't quite have the obstacle course quite the same way anymore. They have a rope now on the wall, you know. There wasn't one then. And so you had to find a way to get out of the road. Now, as a, as a teenager from Colorado in Florida, pretty athletic, this was my thing. I mean, this wasn't just about pure speed. This was about athleticism and climbing things and jumping over stuff. And, and so when they said go, I was out like a shot. And there were a group of us, and we'd just fly through this course, which really meant we'd go over all the things and then spent probably 20 minutes to a half an hour sitting by the wall because you can't get over the wall to other teammates are there. And then as more people show up, you'd get over the wall. And the way that worked was is that you usually have a couple of guys, and, and the teams were guys and girls, and, and, and you have a couple of people and like on shoulders, and then the smallest person would kind of climb up all of them and grab the top, and that was usually me. And then you get up and pull yourself up and straddle the wall. Somebody else does the same thing. And then you're all reaching down and you know grabbing people to help them get up over the wall and climb down, and there was a ladder on the backside. And, and, and then the last person was a tricky one because that person had to be able to jump pretty high to catch the arms of the person who had bent their knees across the top of the wall and were hanging down like this, right? And somebody holding their legs. So you would jump and jump and grab arms and then shimmy up that person. And it was a crazy, crazy thing, all right? So we did this every day for two weeks. And every day, 19 people out of our 20 made it over the wall. There was always one person, this one gal, who, who was, I don't think she ever exercised. She was actually quite frail. And, and she would eventually work her through the obstacle course, but every day when she came to that wall, it was just dread and fear. And she just walked around it. So we never got to check the box that we completed the obstacle course. We couldn't win! A- until all of us lame brain 17, 18-year-olds went, you know, we might be able to do this if we all just went at her speed. So the very final day, when it was time to go on the obstacle course, we all left at the same time. I didn't sprint ahead to wait at the wall. We, we all walked at the same speed and, and shouted encouragement and climbed the rope ladders together and went over the cargo net and helped swing across the slew of despond and around this thing. But when we came to that wall, the fear started to enter. 
But there was something different this time because her, her fear wasn't quite the same. It was the fear of getting over it, but now it wasn't the fear of they're all waiting for me. We're here together. And so we found a way, in the middle of all this, going through the same routine, we found a way to get her up over that wall. And it was absolutely the most glorious celebration. Because we suddenly realized that this was team building. This was about going out into the world to do things very different in the name of Jesus. And we had to do that together. It wasn't about winning the race and checking the box. It was, are we all going to do it? Because that's what Jesus is really telling his disciples here in this story. This isn't a zero-sum game. This is not survivor. This is the eco-challenge. That's what the kingdom is like. In fact, Jesus is about who's the greatest. And Jesus gives them a new definition. He gathers them around him in this house. And remember, Capernaum was probably home base for Jesus and his, his disciples. And there's a child in the house. And he brought the child and placed him in front of them and held him in his arms and said, the one who has to be greatest must be very last. The one who has to be first must be the very last and a servant of all. And he took the little child and he held him in his arms and said, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me doesn't welcome me, but the one who sent me. And now the challenge for us in this passage is we have a very different view of children than that culture did. Children in our culture, we might even say we have a child-focused culture. Everything is about the children. Why right? children are innocent. And children are full of potential. And children bring light and energy and joy and, and all these great things. We focus on children. If you ask somebody, what do you do for a living? Oh, I work with children. Oh, that's amazing. You're the best. That was not the view of children in first century Israel. In the Roman Empire, children were the lowest of the lowest. Children were the lowest on the socioeconomic ladder. Children offered nothing. Children had no honor. Children had no value. Children had no power. They were powerless and they brought nothing until maybe 13 and only if you were a male. I remember the story a few weeks ago when Jesus fed the 5,000. What did it say? There were 5,000 men there that day. Because that's what the culture valued. They didn't count women and children. They just counted the men. These children were nothing. They were not, Jesus didn't bring a child in front of them to say, this child is an example of anything other than this person represents the lowly and represents the humble and represents the disenfranchised and the powerless and those without honor. And if you want to be first, if you want to be great, the new definition of greatness is you have to welcome people like this the only way but but that's not winning when you win when the messiah takes over when we're in charge people serve us and so you're saying greatness is about serving that does not make any sense but that's the new definition of greatness that jesus brought it's similar to a few weeks ago if you want to save your life you have to lose it well that's a paradox if you want to be first you have to be last that's another paradox Jesus says, I'm, I'm trying to teach you and show you what the kingdom is like. I want to teach you and show you what it means to have an enduring, ongoing relationship with God. And it starts with understanding greatness in a different way because God defines things in a different way than you do. And you have to enter into that world. Children were powerless. You need to enter that world as a servant to all. So, so Christ used this opportunity to bring a new definition of greatness, he also brought this opportunity to set a new pattern for community relationships. And the first was there should be marked by peaceful fellowship rather than strife and opposition. 
It's an interesting phrase at the very end of this passage. It says, everyone will be salted with fire, which, which I believe what Jesus was pointing for his disciples, that everyone will be purified through persecution. Things were coming that were not going to be pretty for them. But that's what it meant to live a cross-shaped life and to follow Jesus. But, but our relationships, our community relationships, those who, who follow Jesus, our lives should be marked by peaceful fellowship rather than strife and opposition. And, and this statement at the end, salt is good. But if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? He says, have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. This, have salt among yourself is a really odd phrase. And really, it's, a, it's an idiom. It's a, it's a figure of speech in that culture. Have salt among yourself that we can really understand. If you're, you're having dinner with somebody and you say, pass the salt, that means you're engaged with people in table fellowship. You're living in community with those people. You're sharing life. You're living at peace because you're engaging in a meal together. And salt is something that we share. And in, in those worlds, it really was like a commodity. This was brought home to me by my son-in-law. His name is Jake, and Jake is a, a native Hawaiian Islander, and my daughter married him a few years ago. And, and the first time he spent Christmas with us, which was, uh, I think it was when they were engaged, they were visiting, and, and uh, they, they were working at a camp at the time. And they, they were at our house, and, and Jake had, had his mom send a, a Christmas gift for us. And the Christmas gift was a, a, a Ziploc bag filled with this incredible pink Hawaiian sea salt that you could never buy anywhere. Nor would the people who... Because this was a family salt bed in Kauai. And, and the family harvests it and collects it and works it out, and it's only to be given. It's only to be shared with, with people that you are in community with. It's never to be sold. And, and that's exactly what this is here. So this, this gift of salt was a gift of love and a gift of peace and a gift of community. Have salt among you. Now, we're kind of foodies at our house. I have like six little bamboo salt boxes with all different kinds of salt in them. And the biggest one has this pink sea salt in it. And there's still a little bit left in the cupboard because it's special. It tastes amazing, but it also means something. It's about community and living at peace. And, and that's really what Jesus is saying here. That's what this idiom is. Have salt among you. Live at peace with one another. Not strife and opposition. This should be what, what our relationships in the body of Christ are exemplified by. I, I don't very often get political. And I'm not going, going to go in the specifics of our current election, but I'm going to tell you what I'm most worried about is the impact that this election will have on the church. Because within the church, within people who acknowledge and follow Christ, there are all kinds of viewpoints on who you should or shouldn't vote for. And people saying, you shouldn't vote for that person if you're a Christian. And people saying, you shouldn't vote for that person if you're a Christian. And that is tearing apart the church. It, it can rip apart who we're supposed to be in Christ, which is living lives of sacrifice and service and being with the least of these and being people who share salt among each other, have salt among you. That should be what defines us. And, and what I'm afraid is happening is that people from outside the church will look at the big church, the big Christian church, all who call on the name of Jesus, and they're going to say, these people hate those people because they're voting the wrong way. And these people hate them because they're voting the wrong way. That is destructive to the body of Christ. Where our, our efforts should be, no matter which candidate we vote for, or a third party is a matter of our conscience in following Christ, our most important commitment is to Jesus. And we can't let these kind of things tear us apart. 
And so how do we go out of our way to live at peace with each other and not in opposition or strife because you've chosen the way I never would? I mean, I personally think we have two horrible choices. It's kind of like the disciples deciding who's greatest. None. And if our hope is that by voting for any candidate, we are somehow appointing a powerful person to bring things to us, we have missed that point. We serve Christ and Christ alone. And our focus should be on who Jesus is and who he wants us to be. And he wants us to be people whose lives are exemplified by peace and not by opposition and strife. And so we're going to have to work really hard. Because that's the new type of community Jesus is saying it should be. And this new pattern for community relationships is also to be characterized by service and sacrifice, which is exactly why he brought that child in front of them. The un the, the, the unpowerful one, the disenfranchised one, the lowly one, the humble one, the no position one. And said you need to welcome them and serve them. That should characterize our lives in this community of faith of those who follow Jesus, period. And then this new pattern of community relationships also means we need to be free from narrow exclusivity. This is an amazing little point in this story that just catches you off guard because Jesus had just brought this child, right? Saying, if you want to be first, if you want to be great, you must be last and you must be a servant to all. You must be the one who gets down to serve these who are lowly. And then without missing a beat, John says to Jesus, and you can just hear the whininess in his voice, Jesus, there's a guy who's casting out demons in your name and, and we told him to stop because he's not one of us. Or, or he may have said it more forcefully. Jesus, there's this guy who cast out demons in your name. We told him to stop because he's not on our team. And, and Jesus said, don't tell him to stop. And he said, no one who does something good, who does a miracle in my name can then turn around and say anything bad about me. If they aren't against us, they're for us. And he goes on and said, if, if somebody offers you a cup of cold water in my name, because you belong to me, to Jesus, and we strive to understand his word and listen to the Holy Spirit in incredibly deep ways. Uh, but he is saying, given the context then, which was about persecution, right? Jesus says, everyone will be salted through fire. Everyone will be purified through persecution. If you follow me and live a cross-shaped life, we went into detail about that a few weeks ago. You, you will enter the world of the unlovely and the persecuted. Are you willing to go there? We know those things follow followers of Jesus. And, and, and so Jesus is saying, in those kind of times, if anybody offers you a cup of water, something simple in my name, they know something about me. And they're doing it because they know me. And Mark's audience had this play out in more. Remember, Mark was, was communicating with a, a church, a group of believers in Rome, probably in the 60s AD, 30 years after Jesus, who were living under severe persecution of Nero. These were people who feared for their life every day. If they acknowledged they know Jesus, they could die right then. And so if somebody comes to one of them, knowing they belong to Jesus, and in the name of Jesus, give them a cup of water. That is an amazing gift, and God will not forget that. 
Now, too often, whether it's in the situation of a political campaign or day-to-day life, when we know there are other people doing things in the name of Jesus, we say, well, I don't agree with this thing about their doctrine. We can easily draw up walls that stop us. And Jesus is saying, stop doing that. People are doing this in my name. You might not fully understand it because it's a different background or different culture or different tradition or different country than you're used to. But if they're doing it in my name, don't discount it. And it's too easy to cast stones that way and think we're the only ones that know everything. And we absolutely believe in the inerrant, infallible word of God. The problem is, is that we often think our interpretation is infallible and inerrant. Uh, one of the theologians I like to read at one time said, I'm fully confident that 80% of my theology is correct. I just don't know which 20% is wrong. Now, that's a different way to go through life. Saying, I, I trust in Jesus. I know who Jesus is. I depend on him. But I could be wrong about this part of it. And, and so I need to welcome you into communion and live in peaceful relationship and not opposition and strife because Jesus and this amazing thing and we look at the whole story again and say he chose these 12 to change the world and we know that they're a bunch of failures but obviously something happened through Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came in power and they they did change the world because we're here right now gathering together to worship God. We're, we're reading his word. We're celebrating who Jesus is. We're looking at how does it, what does it mean to have a close, enduring relationship with God. Those 12 failures did what they were asked to do. And Jesus was saying, don't you dare look out there and say, hey, it's only the 12 of us. No, there are things going on around you that you better understand God is at work in ways you will never understand. And if our community is characterized by narrow exclusivity, We've missed Jesus' definition of the community of faith, those who follow Jesus. Uh, the final thing from this passage I see, uh, that this opportunity, Christ uses this opportunity to recognize that there is a level of competition we need to be up for in our life. But, but too often we're competing against the wrong thing. It's not winners and losers in the kingdom of God. It's the opposition, the competition should be about the sin within ourselves. And Jesus used some big language to talk about this, right? If one of you doesn't welcome one of these lowly, humble, disempowered people, if you don't welcome them, it'd be better if you had a millstone around your neck and you drown in the sea. If your hand causes you to, to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. I mean, that's some, that's some verbose language, right? That, that's tough. That's exaggerated. That's hyperbole because it wasn't literally cut off your hand, but it was... Take concrete action. Don't, don't sit there and blame everybody else. Take responsibility for who you are and where you come up short. Take responsibility for your, for your sin by saying, my hand caused me to sin. That's an idiomatic way of saying, I sinned. My foot caused me to sin. That's not an external thing causing anything. It is me. This is my problem. And this is what stops me from more fully engaging and following Jesus. And Jesus saying, Cut that off. Cut that off. Take that out. Even something that is inherently good, eyesight is great. Your hands are amazing tools that God made. Your feet, those are the things that get in the way of our growing and maturity. We need to get rid of those things. We need to make sure that that's our competition, not other people in a zero-sum game. I'm pretty confident that if, if Jesus was walking down the road with us and he says, what are you arguing about? 
we would have some of the same answers. But we're arguing about who's the greatest. We're arguing about who gets recognition. We point fingers. We make things an us versus them mentality because that's a zero-sum game. If I want to win, have somebody else loses, so I can point fingers at you. I worked so hard on that, that church event, and, and nobody said thank you. Where, where's my recognition? It's an easy place to enter into. It's our, it's our human nature. And once again, Jesus is turning the kingdom of God perspective upside down. The first needs to be last. The one who needs to be greatest is the one who's the servant of all. What I love about this passage is, is Jesus is teaching his disciples, these ones who are going to change the world in the name of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit, these 12 failures. Jesus is basically saying, I want you to be great. And he's saying it to us, I want you to be great. But, but being great means you get really low. And you're willing to serve and be among the lowly and the ones who don't have power and the ones who don't have status and the ones who don't have honor and recognize that you're just like them. And that's what greatness is. Jesus says, I want you to be great. Now, now let's, let me define greatness for you. Being first means last. In this upside-down kingdom, where true change and true life happens. This is an amazing story. Greatness means going low, and that's what we need to recognize. We're not going low because we need to reach down. We need to go low because that's where we live. And that's where God changes us and grows us and nurtures us. That's where forgiveness happens and grace happens and goodness happens and change happens. And it happens in that space. And we need to willingly walk into it. Our Facebook posts about what's going on in the election I think would sound different if we went low. And I mean that in a good way. If we go to the place of humility and grace and mercy and be givers of that and receivers of that because that's how God works with us. Let's pray together.